we are very pleased to present Avital Ronel's survival kit for the anguish. Avital Ronel is professor at the New York University, and since January 2020, she's invited by the Rencontre Philosophique de Monaco as guest philosopher in residence, a prolific author internationally known in the fields of philosophy, German literature, comparative literature. We are very pleased and we hope you enjoy Avital Ronel's survival kit for the anguished. What up, everyone? It's Avital. I'm inclined to adding silly to the theoretical menu that we have before us with the understanding that silly comes from Zelisch in German, soulful. So allow me to run circles around some hermeneutic postulates. Today, I want to consider a double-pronged uh, approach, which involves literature, because literature, and we've said this in different ways, um, allows us to open gateways and go the way of poetic excess by uh, taking into account, but also bypassing certain repressive gates, and it allows us to lift coded barriers. At the same time, I'd like us to visit in the neighborhood of social fissuring that I feel is being left behind in egregious ways as we think we're moving past the viral implications of attack and uh, the way the virus has changed up our very existential categories of being. It sounds a little heavy, but I do think that um, we've gone through an experience in the original sense of the word where peri is embedded in experience and peri indicates perilous this, what is perilous, what is dangerous, what involves the fissuring of sovereignty, autonomies, and all our fortresses, as Jean-Luc Nancy recently pointed out. All the walls on which we're propped have proven to be crumbling at this time. And yet, even from the beginning or pre-beginning of the virus, we thought we were over it which is why last time we considered what it means to be over something, to get over something. And in Heidegger, when he reads Hölderling, he thinks about what it is to write über, so above a text. So when you're over something, as we have it in English, or you write sur something in French, you think you're above it all. So let's... let's um, question our, our place and unplace and continue to think together today. Last week, we followed the comorbidity of the virus and racism. This time, we're entering this other style of our thinking, and I want to introduce something uh, that is um, important to us and that we need to consider theoretically, namely germ theory and German theory. 
notably beginning with the findings of Louis Pasteur, that excited specific poetic acts, including Artaud's urgent and outrageous theater of contagion. So I want us to consider the impact of all sorts of um, theoretical and literary poetic texts that address and carry disease so that we can look at the impact, the social package deal of COVID-19 and try to understand what specifically is falling by the wayside, swallowed up with our usual social gourmandise. So we're eating it up, swallowing it, spitting it out. And yet we want to um, hang out with Nietzsche's cows and ruminate and let us chew on it for a while, as it were. In a more um, Greek sense of the ancient Greek tragedy, I guess I'm trying to um, invoke and practice ekiklema, which is um, a mechanism to elicit a reaction from the chorus, which is the internal uh, auditor and spectator of um, some kind of tragic incomprehensibility that has to be brought in to make sense and open up to a new set of sense-making um, decisions organized around social justice. So the ekik lema is something that is meant to incite revulsion even, which is a poetic, tragic, theoretical, um, let's say, um, code that the chorus has to follow. In other words, in terms of the mechanicity of what the chorus is trying to accomplish, um, it brings about uh, the revulsion of those listening and thinking along with the tragic unfolding. Um, it brings about the horror of the um, audience, internal and more externally located, uh, when bodies, dead bodies, are strewn across the stage. So if you wonder about my reversion to Greek theater, Greek audiences, and our speculative handle on, on what they continue to accomplish, just think that um, Hegel without Antigone, Freud without Oedipus, Heidegger without Trockel or Hölderling. Um, okay, well, that's those are translations of Greek tragic tracts. Um, those are unthinkable. So we're still pumping out meaning from the place of Greek spectacle which is what faded into philo philosophy. So where is the spectacle? Where did it go? What kind of subterranean life does it enjoy or hide out in? Uh, when we think we're philosophizing, there's still the um, matrix and maternal womb structure of the spectacle that, that encourages revulsion 
And not that I want to make everyone throw up, but there's a whole history and philosophy of the emetic function. And Nietzsche was a, an emetic philosopher. He was always throwing up, which for him, as we've recognized before, and together with Deleuze, is a reversal of dialectics. Okay, so hello, everyone. I want us to um, think about a bunch of things that the literary um, openness to being in all of its revulsive, repellent uh, aspects and um, will make us uh, think very clearly. Don't forget that Nietzsche started up his engine with the birth of tragedy and music. So I find myself packing heat with poetic license, if you allow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm braying here. Hello and bonjour. We started our sessions with a series of unplanned interruptions, static on the line, and we were able to describe the laceration that communication implies, barely managing the completion of meaning. Our companion poets and our philosophical besties reminded us at every step of the way that life consists of a multitude of meaningless events that bypass our comprehension. The act itself of ascribing meaning to something or to an act, to a, an event, um, is something to be seized upon as an object of reflection. Things intervene, interrupt, collapse an intention, capsize a fragile vessel. It may well be that philosophical rigor and poetic justesse requires you to go with the unflow, to linger at the point of blockage where things repudiate being or break apart, to disclose an aspect of being formerly hidden. Humpty Dumpty was a mascot at one time standing for deconstruction. Now, when I report on um, kind of, let's say, disdainable, quasi, barely poetic um, memory traces that we collectively somehow still archive, I'm also um, offering and performing a philosophical gesture that has everything to do with what we said last time about not having a destiny. I'm not invoking with uh, grave and historical, meaning instituting tonalities, uh, the prophetic and truth-finding um, utterances of a Hölden or a great poet. Though so I'm not going to... Um, dump Humpty Dumpty into some sort of dumpster of, of ill-conceived poetic insight. Just want to say that this is reinscribing or disinscribing a philosophical relation to something like um, a degraded poeticity. Now, I want to talk about Humpty Dumpty today because he, at one point, stood for deconstruction, 
and he's still kind of standing for deconstruction. I should say he fell for deconstruction. He was falling for deconstruction. He's an unding, which is literally an unthing, a preposterous entity, maybe the unding ansich, the uh, thing or unthing in itself, of itself, that Kant and later Hegel bat around. The, in any case, Humpty Dumpty is the essence of deformed being, unidentifiable, excess monstrous, pacified only by the suffix T. Um, so Humpty Dumpty. Um, I don't know if he's taking tea or testosterone or what kind of um, uh, transitioning this thing, this body, this this um, promise that um, that there could be something in breaking things apart that we might. Um, Enjoying ourselves to consider in the dark radiance of becoming, in the also light that we haven't yet sufficiently protected, seen, um, encouraged. So, on some level, and I'm I'm wanting to say this more, um, more carefully. Um, there's a limit. He, that Humpty Dumpty sat on. He sat. He's he. It. They sat on limits. They straddled limits. Marked the fragility of the subject. Propped on a frontier. Poised. In utter passivity. In in this context. Now let's go back to without opening up the polysemic um, frontiers of of this. Um, being, non-being, becoming being that um, still attracts some sort of um, theoretical vigilance. Like all of us, he falls, it falls, satombe, it tombs, it falls into time, falls into history, falls in love, falls forward, splitting off parts, and falling to pieces becomes the figure or disfiguration attached to breaking into the big bang of the morselated subject, uncontained, fragmented, and ever about to crack on the brink. We try to understand what it is to be on the brink, on the brink of happening, of disaster, of non-being. Now, you'll remember that there's an apparatic, you may not have thought about it, and why should you, an apparatic um, opening when all the king's horses and all the king's men. So I, I won't ride these horses, but it's already contradictory. It's an aporia. It doesn't uh, make immediate sense that horses would try to put this uh, fragmenting object being um, unidentifiable fragility together again. Horses commonly pull things apart when they're called to um, scenes of punishment or, or retrieval or relief. 
So I'm going to leave that to the side. How can the horses put something together again? Uh, but all the king's men tried to put Humpty together again, which is a crowded flush of patriarchy, monarchy, soldiers and police. Um, something is trying to pull something together here, but fails to put this thing, a thing together, a thing, a think, um, that also rhymes dissonantly with Trump on a, yet another um, incommensurable register. So Humpty Dumpty Dump Trump Rump. Uh, Trumpty Dumpty sat on a wall. The pre-poetic figure of a non-recuperable totality. So this is what this seems to allegorize or prompt in terms of an immediate interpretive um, grasp of what's at stake, so to speak, that something was a totality and can't be recuperated, can't be put back together. It's shattered for good, as it were. And um, it's something that is becoming or unbecoming body, makes us question a body that um, sits on a wall Perhaps it's one of the body politics or a body shaken down by whatever that was and continues to be already chewed off. It's something that arrives as a fall into time, into space, a fall into being and chewed off by repression, dumped somewhere in the dreadful simplicity of a nursery rhyme in unconscious zones of social forgetfulness while growing or menacing a return elsewhere and again in a different unform. Something happened to us, cracked us open, collectively and singly, that shook us to the core, had us eating pavement, scraping the ground of anguish, spinning in varying degrees of solitary, and then pulling us into a collective indignation something unprecedented that we cannot simply abandon or leave to the distress of its own promise of oblivion. So as we're pretending to come out, as we are coming out of our various forms of confinement or lockdown, um, there's a clear promissory note that one wants to sign off on immediately, which is let's forget about what this could have meant or ha what has happened to us, what will have happened to us. But as philosophical, I was thinking of Erasmus who called us philosophers. He said he was a philosopher, so fooling around. Um, this is one of the um, indignations that philosophical romping seems to attract to itself. Am I for real? Am I serious? Am I really talking about a nursery rhyme instead of the more um, severe lucidities that real poetry yields? So why would I do that? Why would I even expose myself to derision at this point? Why not? Let's, let's, um, let me justify this um, problematic off-ramp. Now, as those who have signed up 
for the philosophical probe. We are required to summon our analytical skills, our utmost lucidity, even at the corner of what the fuck and the barely intelligible, in order to confront a fundamental caesura at this time, a breakage, for something still at bottom, unanalyzable, happened, sending out after tremors, convulsing with unspinnable and unpinnable spurts of meaning, offering a vague grid-like structure on which to hang thought. If before Humpty Dumpty took a great fall, now don't forget that he didn't take a mere fall, but a great fall. So let us make the fall great again. In French, they tend to say, if you want to make an omelet, you first have to crack an egg, which means more or less, I think, you have to take the fall or the risk of coming apart irreparably without the hope or mystification of recuperation. If I had time to mix it up, I would want to crack this stout-hearted omelet into an omelette, a little man whose predicament and why not podcastration we could analyze closely. Make an omelet, beat an egg, performatively separate an anthropomorphized egg as Lewis Carroll saw Humpty, have us read the unrelenting fragility of our um sickness, how sick we are of thee, and because of the anthropos, the classical unity of man, the man, or um. So when I'm thinking of the omelette and the um, I'm also reading a tract in Lacan, who um, treated the om and the omelette. I don't know if he actually cured them, but we're, I'm saying we're over, we're sick. We've been rendered sick about by the classical unity of man and all the implications that um, Derrida, La Coulabar, Jean-Luc Nancy, Lyotard and others, um, Sarah Kaufman, um, analyzed in, in um, in a, in a meeting, in a conference at Cerisi called Les Fans de l'Homme, the ends of man. So this is where we could turn to Nietzsche's overman because Nietzsche is so overman. Man as a concept that, that continues to violate, continues to justify violence. And Nietzsche kicked out of the way of our stride. Um, the, the thought of the overman, the thought of the overman, he translated the philosophical need into and, and handed it over to the custody of trans feminists, the future of philosophy. But I'm not going to hitch a ride on the Nietzschean train of thought right now or try to establish a proper philosophical legacy legacy. Though I'm never far from Nietzsche's side, striking the ambivalent pose sometimes of this eternally recurring runaway bride. 
but let me pull away from this precipice before the king's horses try to put me together again. So, um, frankly, I think and practice by a philosophical playbook that has us scramble the master codes and struggle with um, philosophical certitudes or even doubts that are proudly put out there. I, I try to show and perform and indicate by my way of approaching problems and what we've been calling philosophemes or philosophical clusters that still mess with us. I try to show that Perhaps one needs to take the risk of interruption, the philosophical track and tracks and mood shouldn't seem normal. Um, I worry about normalizing effects of theoretical utterance and assertion. So obviously Humpty Dumpty is more kid tested than and there's something about allowing the kids to crawl into philosophical headquarters that creates a lot of noise and static and disturbance that I would like to welcome and hold if, if we can imagine that. Um, in another um, area of thought, we would think about infants and how philosophy has locked them out of the philosophical dwelling, and there you would want to read Christopher Finn's, Blanchot, um, Agamben, and others who have written about infants, including infanticide, and what philosophy does, Lyotard, um, to lock them out. But um, I like to be trekking, thinking that we're trekking with Spinoza when I do uh, strange, uh, let's say, excursions that barely seem like normative or acceptable philosophical um, developments or analysis. Spinoza links philosophizing with freedom and bringing up the rear, bringing up baby, rearing baby as part of our potty training, I would say. So um, Spinoza invites us to be free in acts of philosophizing. That does not mean that he's in any way compromising or letting go of, of rigor or the need to know what the hell you're inscribing into and, and um, going against. Um, but in another world and another uh, context, we can think of how Spinoza even thinks of the exegetical work that, um, that we're asked to do. What is exegesis? It opens things to the future in Spinoza as we take them to the limits of determination and find and locate their breakdown, their arbitrary crack up. It's, it ought to give you an experience of license. Anyway, in our situation of extreme aberrancy, the ruse of normalcy would fail reason itself, I should think.
I am being reasonable, I used to tell my father, incredulous at my antics, worried for the Jews. He wanted me to put a muzzle on it, or at least to behave myself so that the Gentiles would leave us in peace. My daddy would for sure not want me to push the patriarchal envelope by referring us to a dark exaltation called Artu, who should be, I believe, our home base and baseness in homeless times of off-the-grid consternation with his specific sense of the experience of breaking apart in this signature case, signaling a breakage caused by the dramatically explosive fact of infestation that he connects to theater, the work of an immense liquidation. And here, if we had time, and I'm not going to put it on us because I see time ticking, uh, we'd want to read Pasteur uh, with bifocals um, and, and Bertot together. In the theater and the plague, Bertot's uh, text, he focuses on two organs marked by affliction and representation, namely the brain and the lungs, as he enters the code for breaking in on brain control, practices of controlled breathing, how language disrupts and participates in violence and cruelty. So our fragile lungs become the focus not only of the COVID-19 um, cures even, the treatments um, leave permanent uh, damage on our lungs or at least marks, markings. So um, don't forget that this is Mr. Body Without Organs. That was all the rage in Deleuzean times. So we... Um, want to be thinking about the body, the organs, the release of organs and our organic, the organic hits we've taken. Where in your body have you um, located or displaced your pain and um, damage to whether or not you were struck by that viral attack? So let us look provisionally at least. Let me introduce to you in case you haven't had the luscious experience of literary depravity. Let us look at the extreme lucidity of Artaud's ravings about our current spasms and dischiavement, the dramaturgy of the pandemos. Don't forget pandemic comes from demos. Uh, so all people in democracy, uh, in a democratic um, uh, target range. Not entirely, we've discussed that, that some people are more exposed and fragilized than others. But let's look at what um, theater should be accomplishing according to Artaud, because for him, it should be like a plague, a contagion, it should exemplify a contagious, uncontrollable force that invades the body of the actor and the spectator, rendering intellectual faculties useless, mush, inescapably set loose as a destructive unleashing of something like vengeful 
range. We experience theater and plague as kind of victory of vengeance. Artaud reminds us that literature is a disease carrier and struck by illness, not afraid of, of going into infected zones. And if we had time, I wish we would make time for this, but I'm sure you will. Um, you, you really start watching out for the whole history of archival um, of medicalizations, including Elizabethan plague tracts, all the way to AIDS plays. Um, um, for Artaud, the necessary failure of representation, which he insisted upon, um, is emphasized in terms of the untranslatable um, thought and somehow we're supposed to implement this in theater ever since the ancient Greeks of the unstageable. So uh, remember in the beginning of this session, I, I was trying to take the place or assume the position of in, in Greek uh, tragedy of the one who creates repugnance and an unrepresentable horror um, by, by considering the unstageable, namely death or mortality. Artaud sees both theater and cosmic manifestations of illness as calling up collective, um, let's say, convulsions and calling us to empty and abscess. This sounds kind of unassimilable and icky and weird, but it revitalizes as it goes under uh, the still enigmatic Greek sense of fear and terror. So this is something that Lacoubert said, we haven't really fully understood why Greek tragedy wants to provoke terror and what is terror for the Greeks. But um, in the case of Artaud and possibly with our, in our case, not sure, but let's, let's think about it. There's the provocation of fear and terror, yet without the recuperative promise of catharsis. So this is without catharsis and deserves more attention, uh, especially in the history of philosophical purges of what gets um, really violently thrown out of the bodies that philosophy treats and thinks about. It's a motif that has um, imposed itself on us lately, but also um, co-implicating the thought of the considerations, the structurations or destructurations of relief, or rather what fails to relieve. What, what brings relief? What is it that we seek and how do we uh, try to demarcate zones of relief giving? So we'll sidebar this question of what brings relief. And we've seen that we seek redemptive uh, responsiveness from science, politics, love, food, animal, plants, poetry, YouTube, entire gardens. Defend, defend or defund the police movements, 
um, all of this um, brings in some manner that needs to be considered and, and closely regarded a sense of relief. It's about time to stop the flow of funding or to reorient uh, it. For Artaud's text on Le Théâtre et la Peste, it is important to come to terms with the images of carnage and the extreme force of the power punch of nature in manifest vengeance, an extreme and collective field of affliction and illness, doubling the way nature unleashes on us a full-on malignancy. There is something victorious and vengeful here, an immense liquidation, social disaster, organic disorder. Artaud sees plagued nature and theater crashing in our protective barriers and existential shields in the name of a total exorcism. So let's try to stick with this and think about how he sees and inundates us with how, how COVID would inundate us with spiritual evil, spasms, déchirement, falling, fragmenting, off the wall, douleur, pain, in the form or rather unform of putrid obscenity, shining in the quiet radiance of a world crashing mystery play. This level of cataclysm and debacle is what it takes to break dogmas that we no longer want here. Digging into the depravity revealed in some measure by pandemic fury requires, says Arto, a heroic attitude. And this is what we've been calling all along a nihilistic disclosure, something terrifying uh, is being disclosed about ourselves, about our dark sides. And it requires a heroic attitude to um, stare it down, lean into it, invite it in all of its gory glory. So the um, lesson, if there is one, to pull from Arto and the, those we have invited to participate in today's session would be to allow yourselves emetic heaves at this point. Don't slump away. Agree to face all of this um, carnage. And let us continue to think it and invite it despite the discomfort it induces in our fullest dignity. Well, take care, be well, be safe, be proud. See you next week.